This past week, there was this strange story that emerged out of uh, Chicago. A man was arrested, a 36-year-old Californian man was arrested for um, living in Chicago O'Hare's airport. He'd been there for three months um, living in the secure area or, you know, on the other side of TSA. And this past week, he was finally busted. Um, And when they begin to question why would anyone live for three months in an airport, because that is next level purgatory right there. Um, His response was um, in the midst of traveling home, he got so concerned about the coronavirus that he decided the airport was safer to live, which I'm not exactly sure the calculus that went into that choice being made. But when I read the story, I thought it was such a fitting picture for what it looks like in the meantime. That last week we looked at the behaviors of in the meantime that are really essential to navigating this type of season. And it's the managing our expectations and managing our emotions that if we're able to do those two things, those two will help kind of guide behaviorally and help us sustain through this meantime. But what that man's story illustrated is that there's something even stronger than behaviors at work in the season that we find ourselves that there's something even stronger underneath the surface that can shape our behaviors, that can actually shape how we navigate the season that we find ourselves in, and it's our beliefs. You see, that man believed sincerely that Chicago O'Hare Airport was safer than California because of his view around COVID-19. And his belief shaped his whole behavioral scope, and for three months, He lived inside that airport. And while it'd be easy to kind of laugh and kind of downplay the story and what we see in his life, reality is is that you and I can fall into the same trap of allowing our beliefs or specifically the lies that creep into our lives to start to shape our behavior. And that when those lies get rooted and start to inform our beliefs, then we start to see all types of hopelessness start to set in. And as we've seen, whether at a national level or even in our personal life, a belief doesn't need to be true to gain traction in our lives. It doesn't have to be true to gain traction. And today I want to take you to a passage, a very short passage, in fact, a very... um, kind of obscure moment in the ministry of Jesus, one that maybe you've read before if you've been in church for a, kind of for, a, for most of your life, but chances are even if you would consider yourself um, really kind of aware of the kind of Bible stories and the different frames and kind of moments in the life of Jesus, it's possible that even this moment has kind of escaped you because it's very small. But in this season, I think what's playing out is actually really really important. It's found in Matthew chapter 11, and it's in the message notes if you want to go back and read it later inside of our app. I'm going to have it on the screen as I read through some of it. But the backdrop, Matthew is the first book um, in what we call the New Testament. It's the Christian portion of the scriptures that, um, that we call the Bible as a whole. 
Matthew was one of the four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. Matthew was a follower of Jesus. He was, um, when he wrote the biographical account of being with Jesus and spending time with Jesus and seeing his miracles and hearing his messages, um, Matthew had a specific passion for fellow brothers and sisters who were Jewish, who came out of the Jewish religious system. So Matthew's book has a lot a lot of allusions and references and details that would have meant a lot to Jewish people in the day, which can cause us sometimes 2,000 years removed to miss some of it because Matthew took for granted some of the insider language and some of, some of the insider knowledge that the first century Jewish men and women would have had when they heard and read his account. And so Matthew in 11, he begins with telling us that after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. So Jesus has been preparing, discipling, training these 12 that um, we now call the 12 disciples. And he sends them out. He's essentially put them through his internship program. He releases them into some type of like kind of real life residency experience. And while they're kind of going out and doing ministry, Jesus goes and does it too. And he's traveling around, he's teaching, and he's preaching in the towns of Galilee, this whole section in the northern part of Israel. Now it says, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him. Now, there's almost this kind of, uh, fade in, if there was um, kind of this fade moment that would happen to Jewish readers in the backdrop of this. John, who um, is a reference to John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was most likely Jesus's cousin. Uh, Mary and Elizabeth, if you remember in the earlier stories or in the early accounts of the Christmas, um, when Mary first finds out she's pregnant, she goes and spends time with Elizabeth. Elizabeth is the mother of John. And so probably Jesus and John would have known each other growing up. But John had this really important ministry. He was um, kind of in some ways the forerunner. He was the platform builder for Jesus. John had um, built a huge following of people as he was teaching and preaching and proclaiming. Um, and so John had become sort of a celebrity in Israel. John was known for his passion around purity and right living. And so John had kind of gotten into a habit of um, calling out people who had uh, maybe disagreed or lives disagreed with what was very clear in Jewish teachings. One of these people happened to be the king of the area, um, King Herod, um, who was the son of the King Herod in the Christmas story. And so King Herod's son, also named Herod, um, had married his niece. Now, the niece used to be married to his brother. It's, and it gets kind of talk show, daytime talk show, jacked up um, in the course of what happens. It's really weird. And, and so John is like, look, this is wrong on so many different levels. And he's publicly telling, proclaiming, teaching, and, and calling out King Herod um, for what he's done. Now, King Herod naturally doesn't like the attention. There's a whole political backstory I won't get into. But there was already some political unrest in the region where King Herod um, was ruling. And so John stirring up the pot just made 
this situation even more volatile. In fact, a few years after this moment, there will be a rebellion in that region against King Herod. And many historians believe it was because of some of the things John was saying and what was done to John. And so there's this powder keg that's about to explode, and, and it finally does. Herod arrests John, and he throws him in prison. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, just to jump there, that's what's playing out in this chapter when it says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the Sea of Zebulun and Naphtali. There's, in Matthew chapter 4, again, remember there's so much insider pieces of information. Um, Matthew's painting a geographical picture for us, which is really helpful for the first century reader, but not as much helpful for us today. But the backstory is that when he's arrested, John is taken to a prison um, at King Herod's fortress, a place that you can actually go and still visit today in modern-day Jordan. And, and it's this backstory that leads John's disciples to come and say to Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, John's been in prison, and he's been sitting and waiting. And the message, if you're not aware of some of Matthew's intentional framing and placement and how he chronologically unfolds his, his biographical account or his gospel account of Jesus, you can miss what's going on in this text. You see, John isn't trying to have a philosophical question or a philosophical or theological kind of dialogue with Jesus. You see, what you see in verse 4 is it says he withdrew to Galilee. Now, if you were to pull up a map of Israel, what you would find is that modern day, um, kind of the where Herod's fortress was located in, um, is just near the Dead Sea in modern day Jordan. And Galilee is in the northern part of Israel. And if you were to trace that, what you'd find is that's about 130 miles separated. And so what we find out is that when John is arrested, Jesus actually leaves. And he goes about 130 miles away from where John is. On top of that, he's, John isn't writing and sending his disciples because over the weekend he got arrested. Based on kind of how Matthew chronologically lays out his, his accounts, it's been about a year to a year and a half that John has been sitting in that prison in the middle of the desert, waiting to be released. And so when he sends, J when he sends Jesus the message saying, are you the one to come or is there someone else? He's crying out. He's really struggling. And he's really making a very deeply personal appeal to Jesus. See, John is stuck in the meantime. He's living in a desert dungeon, wondering how this thing is going to play out because it doesn't look like what he thought it would look like. And while sitting there, some of his beliefs are starting to waver. And this is why in verse 6 of chapter 11, you have perhaps one of the most interesting, insightful, and surprising things that Jesus says in his ministry. A statement that 
in some ways, maybe is maybe the most encouraging thing you could hear today. It's this. Jesus says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus receives the verbal letter through John's disciples and and his concluding statement to them is to go tell John that blessed is he who does not stumble on account of me. The word stumble is literally to be tripped up or even offended, to be kind of brought down, to spiral, to have a downfall. Saying blessed is anyone whose faith isn't destroyed because of their faith in me. You see, philosophically, right, we all know the world is jacked up. I want to help give you a fresh nightmare. This, this is called a bobbit worm. A bobbit worm lives in the ocean. It stays kind of neatly tucked in a burrow, uh, uh, like, a, like a burrow. And while it's in that burrow, it sits with its mouth open like that. And in case you can't see that, let me give you a closer shot. It sits there waiting and lurking for its prey. The fish swim by, and the bobbit worm flies up out of its burrow, and it clamps with its jaws right in the middle of the fish. Sometimes its jaw strength is so strong, it cuts the fish in half. Other times, it severely kind of spurs and traps the fish, and the worm pulls it into its burrow to eat it. Like, that's not a cute bedtime story you tell your children about animals, right? Reality is, is that like, if you want to be reminded of how brutal life is, just watch National Geographic with the cute little deer and all of a sudden you see the predator and inside you're cheering for that little baby deer to run as fast as it can. And then the cheetah or the lion or whatever predator it happens to be in the special consumes it. And that the world is terrifying. This thing is 10 feet long. 10, I haven't slept well this week because 10 feet long. That's terrifying. That's real. That's in the ocean that you swim in or that you used to swim in, right? I mean, like, that's so scary. And all of us philosophically know the world is broken. But something happens when we go through hard times. We all know that even in the text of the Bible is a lot about suffering. But something happens when suffering is no longer in the text, but is in your context. It's something happens when pain is no longer philosophical, but it becomes personal. That pain starts to distort and shape our perspective. It even changes how we see the meantime. And I'm actually incredibly grateful that for God and his wisdom and how he guided Matthew, that we have Jesus' words. It's understood that pain can limit our perspective to the point that it can even make us start to doubt what we deeply believed. John was Jesus' first follower. 
It was, I mean, John was essentially the man who had built the Twitter following that was massive. And then he handed it over to Jesus and said, you guys need to follow him. Don't, don't worry about me anymore. He's the one I've been waiting for. Follow him. I mean, he built a platform that he willingly gave away to Jesus, and now he's been languishing in prison for a year and a half. And the pain is real. The distortion is so deep that now he's not even sure if the one he put his trust in is the one he should have put his trust in. Because the pain got personal. And instead of Jesus reprimanding him, Instead of Jesus saying, well, John, you should have had more faith, or John, you should have been a better follower. Instead of chastising John, ridiculing John, he responds to John. He doesn't heap guilt on John for his doubts. He doesn't downplay. He acknowledges that the very reason John is struggling with his faith is because of Jesus. And his actions. He's essentially saying, happy is the man or the woman who does, who maintains their faith, even when I'm not doing what they thought I should do. He's acknowledging the challenge and the doubts that can come. And I'm grateful that Matthew, when he wrote it, it's one of these small reasons I believe the Bible accounts are true. Because if I was trying to make up a story that I wanted people to believe, I don't think I would put stories about the most important followers doubting Jesus. In fact, you go flip through um, religious texts and religious stories. Um, like if we had time, I could walk back there and pull off different um, kind of texts from different religions and walk you through. What you don't find is the follower telling stories about the I mean, the leader telling stories about the follower's doubts. And yet, John, the original, like the OG follower of Jesus, is struggling with the doubts to the point that he's not even sure he believes in Jesus anymore. It's like, is there someone else? Because I've been sitting in this prison for a really long time. And I don't know if I can keep holding on. If there's any, if there's Tell me there's someone else. See, in the meantime, Jesus wanted John to realize that, that blessed, happy is the one who doesn't confuse God's silence for God's absence. That doesn't confuse God's silence for God's apathy. And that if we're not careful, you and I, in the meantime, can fall into the same trap that John had fallen into. That our confidence starts to falter and we mistake the lack of confidence that we have for a lack of character that he has. His character hasn't changed even if your confidence has. And Matthew's account reminds us that he's not threatened by our questions. That he's not thrown into a downward spiral because of our doubts. He actually welcomes them. And he even says, blessed is he or she who maintains faith and who I am, even in the midst of where they are.
And that Jesus understands that for some of us, when we live in the meantime where we look around and he's not working the way we think he should be working, he recognizes that sometimes we start to think that he's not working at all. Which is why Jesus' words back to John is so important. Not just verse 6, but what he says right before verse 6. And it's in these words that John's, uh, that Jesus gives John the encouragement and the clarity and the tools to reinforce the truth, to dislodge the lies that have crept in. It's subtle. Again, remember Matthew's writing for a first century Jewish audience, and it can be really easy to miss it. He says, tell this, go back and report to John what you hear and see. He's saying, hey, I want you to, I want you to make sure that what you're hearing from me, what you're hearing around me, and what you're seeing, you go back and give that to John. John can't hear it. John can't see it. He needs you to do it for him. And he says, this is what I want you to tell him. I want you to tell him that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, the genius of what we see in this text, again, Matthew's pointing directly to two passages in the scroll of Isaiah, or what we call the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament portion of the Christian Bible. That Jesus is saying to John, John, I want to remind you, I know you feel the weight of the lies. I know you feel the, the struggle that the lies have brought, but I want to remind you of the truth of what I've said. 700 years ago, Isaiah walked these lands and said these words that when he comes, when he walks among us, when God's redemption flows, that the blind will receive sight, the lame will walk, those who have leprosy will be cleansed, the deaf will hear, and the good news will be proclaimed. He said what Isaiah said, your disciples now can see, John. He reminds him of the truth of his words and the faithfulness of his promises. That for many of us, what happens is that we begin to disconnect from the truth and we start to listen to the lies. And Jesus is telling John and telling us, don't disconnect from the truth. Make sure that you're renewing the way you think through the lens and the words of my truth and my faithfulness, and my promises. That there's something supernaturally inspiring and life-giving when you read in the New Testament letters of how Paul suffered, but how he and his suffering depended on Jesus, and Jesus sustained him in the midst of his suffering. That when you read about or you read those words, you go into your suffering with a renewed strength that what God did for Paul, he can do for me too. That there's no... 
no promise. There, there is a stream of Christianity that unfortunately confuses a lot of people that says, if you follow God, things will always work out. If you follow God, things will always go the way you want it to. Your bank account will be big. You, your body will be strong. Your relationships will be great. You'll finally have all the things that you've ever wanted. That it's just a matter of speaking it into existence. But if you've ever tried that route, it doesn't really work very well. I'm still bald. I still drive a Buick. I still have to fly on American Airlines. I don't have a private jet. Now, I did marry way up, and my kids are awesome. But I kind of think that's just genetically tied to my wife, Jenny. The reality is a lot of what the Christian faith speaks to in the actual text is a God who is present in our suffering, who sustains us in our suffering. And that he doesn't just point John to the truth. In his words, he also points John, reminds John of how he's working. He's saying, look, the lame are walking. There are people being healed in the presence of Jesus. You saw it. Go tell him what you saw. Remind him that even while I'm not even though it looks like I'm not working in his prison, I am working. I'm just not working the way he thought I would. And that's a little bit of a difficult pill to swallow sometimes. But I think sometimes we have to be reminded that we're really small. And what we understand about the world or about the future is really limited. And that pain distorts the perspective and sometimes causes us to look for shortcuts when there's actually something God wants to do through the midst of it. That while God, oftentimes, what we interpret as silence is actually him working something through us by taking us through something else. And that sometimes He's wanting to shine through us in the midst of our suffering. And that we have to be careful that we don't allow the pain to allow us only to focus on the areas where we don't see working, where God's work is present. And that we miss all the ways he's working around that, which is what he was saying to John. I mean, right? Have you ever found when you gripe and complain, it's only usually about one or two things. But if you, you know, you kind of maybe step back a little bit and you practice gratitude, your gratitude would never be limited to one or two things. I mean, if you started to categorize and declare all the things that you would see as evidence of God's goodness in your life, it's a long list, right? You're breathing. You're alive this morning. You're not in jail, so you didn't get arrested for being naked, so you probably have clothes, right? You, you have food. And when you start to really start to notice all the subtleties of life, you realize maybe there are some areas he's not working the way you thought he would work, but that doesn't mean he's not working. And that if you were to start to list the areas where he's working, you would find that there are a lot more good things in your life than there are things to gripe about. 
And look, hear me, I'm not downplaying. I'm not minimizing the struggle. Because I recognize that for some of us, that you're walking through painful periods. Infertility rips your heart out. Losing a family member feels so permanent, like it'll never end. That losing your job feels like all your security got kind of yanked away. And if you're walking through uncertainty with your health and you're sick, it, it shapes how you see everything. I'm not minimizing the pain. I just don't want to maximize the pain more than it actually is either. That while it's real and it's present, it's not the only thing present. That he is at work. And the way that we counteract the lies that God silences his absence or God silences his apathy towards me is that we focus on his words and what he said and what is true. And we look for how he's already working in our lives to find the strength to believe that even when it doesn't look like he's working, he's still at work in our lives. And that in the meantime, that you and I can grab hold of that and find strength and find hope and find and anchor our lives in the truth to overcome the power the lies has. And that ultimately, what John says to him is like, Jesus, I feel like I'm trapped in a prison. I feel like nothing is going to change. I've been here for a year and a half. I know you have power. Like, this doesn't have to be Ocean's Eleven, Jesus. This can just be you walking up and splitting the walls and, or allowing me to walk through the walls. Like, you're, you're powerful. This doesn't have to be some prison escape movie. You just say the words, and it all falls down. And what Jesus understood, and what John would never see until the other side of his life, after he was executed, was that Jesus came to bring more than just freedom from prison bars. Like, sure, he could have walked in and released John from prison, but that wasn't the prison that he came to release us from. That for many of us, we live in prisons of our own design. We live in prisons that are locked from the inside. That we make choices Right, that you and I have participated in every single bad choice that we've ever made. Every one of, almost every one of our regrets in our lives, we were a part of it, and we had a role to play. And I recognize there's exceptions to that. There is, there is brokenness. There is violence. There are things that are done that should have never been done to people. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about that most of the things I regret in my life, I was a part of it that there's an inner prison that's stronger, that's greater than even the prison that would have external bars. And Jesus came to bring us freedom from that prison, the prison that feels hopelessness, the prison that leads people to, in despair to destroy and to tear down and to rip apart others, the prison that would break families apart because of other things. The prison that comes from 
recognizing that the worst enemy in your life is the one staring back at you in the mirror every single day. That prison, that what great theologians would call sin and death. That's the prison he came to free us from. That's why he would go to the cross to take punishment, to take the penalty, to to have the bill put on him. That bill that had caused us to be separated from God, that relational disconnect between God and man and women, boys and girls. Because whenever someone does something wrong, someone has to pay a price, right? If someone knocks over your mailbox tonight and they get caught, it's one thing to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. But the reality is the mailbox is still there broken and destroyed. And someone has to pay for that mailbox to be repaired. And that the I am sorry, please forgive me, is not enough to repair the relationship. Somebody in the relationship has to take the cost and pay the price. Someone has to accept the wrong. And in the cosmic grand scheme of justice, God stepped into earth to take the penalty and to pay off the bill that you and I had amounted to give us the keys to find real freedom of grace, of peace, joy, and hope that was bigger and greater than our circumstances or our choices. That true religion isn't motivated by how much good you've done. It's motivated by how good God was to you which always leads you to do more than you have ever would have done before. That true religion and grace, you don't follow the rules because you're afraid you're going to get caught. You follow the rules because you love the rule maker and you know the rule maker loves you. You don't follow him because you think he's watching you. You follow him with joy, knowing he's always there with you that that grace that cut through heaven and earth through the shape of a cross, that's the freedom that's greater than any freedom. Bob Goff a couple weeks ago spoke here, and one of the things I've heard him say in the past is that Bob does a lot of work with prison, um, especially in um, countries around the world where it's not a place you'd want to be. One of the things that he made a statement about uh, when when I was listening to him talk in a a different context, was he talked about how one of the things that surprised him as a lawyer going into these prisons is that some of the the freest people he would ever meet were, were inside the bars of the prison, not outside. Because they, in the prison system, had met Christ. They'd become Christians. The, The regrets, the pain, the guilt had been washed away. They no longer lived with those chains. They were free. And this is present in the New Testament. In the text, when, jo- when Paul would talk about his freedom, he'd found in Christ while he's writing from being in prison. And that that's the freedom that he can still bring, even in the midst of the meantime. That for those who are Christians, that you would be reminded that he's still working and that his words are still true. And he's with you. He's not apis. Like absent or apathetic, he loves you. He demonstrated it through the cross. 
And for those who are not Christians, maybe you grew up in a religious setting, but you always were motivated by guilt. You always tried to check enough boxes because deep down inside, you hoped you were good enough for God. But the, the, the underlying, the existential anxiety and struggle and concern and need to do good because you're hoping is, is pointing to the fact that you recognize even down deep down inside that there's not a good that's good enough for you to be good enough to get into heaven. And that maybe today, in the meantime, is, that, is the moment that you meet the creator of time that you would find his power, his grace. And it begins simply with a step and a trust towards what he did for you. And if that's you, I'd love to engage with you. I'd love to help you get started in that uh, inside of our app or at encounterchurch.com forward slash faith um, or exploring faith icon in our app. We have resources to help you um, navigate that journey. We have books for those who... um, Maybe you're, you're struggling with faith, but you, you want to step across the line. You want to become a Christian, but you're not sure. You have some legitimate questions, just like John did. We have resources to help you find answers to those questions. Because we believe truth is greater than any lie. So we, as a church, we love questions. We're not afraid of them. Because the truth, like light, never runs from darkness and lies. And if that's you, if, or if you're ready to step across that line of faith and you would just like to know how to get started strong, we'd love to walk with you. And so whether through the Explore Faith icon or whether through encounterchurch.com forward slash faith, let us know how we can serve you. Because today can be the day you're released from the prison on the inside. And I want to leave you, as we do every single week, with a couple of questions that's meant to just kind of help provoke you deeper into thought, uh, maybe through a phone call or text message with a friend, or maybe even as part of a life group here at Encounter Church, because we believe that we need people who surround us, who aren't limited with the perspective of pain, that they, they have a different perspective, and they're able to tell us what they see in here, too that can bring life to us, just like John's disciples. And so here's some of the questions. Are there any areas you've confused his silence for apathy? I was interacting with someone this week who that's where they are right now. Um, Early this week, um, one morning I was praying because I have a prayer list of people who I know who are walking through really difficult times because they've let us know. And I was just praying through that list of people's names, praying that they wouldn't confuse his silence with his absence. But that's a struggle that all of us can have. And then this is more of just an encouragement to spend some time today writing down the ways you see him working. Instead of focusing on the areas where you don't see him working, are there some areas where you do? And then the third is really meant to just be, I think for Christians to, to kind of deeply reflect on the fact that we serve a God who knows what it's like to suffer too, who knows what it's like to be in the meantime. And so how does focusing on the cross change how you view your circumstances? How does thinking about what Jesus did on the cross for you change how you view what you're going through? That if we're willing to do that, we're willing to lean into these three areas that what we'll find is that in his word, 
and in his working is the strength, is the truth, is the clarity we need to push back on the lies that can creep in in the meantime. Let's pray. God, thank you that you're a God who is faithful, that you're a God who is able. You're a God who's good. And I pray, Dad, that you would, um, even in our response today, that you would meet us, that you would help us with clear eyes, see the ways that you are present in our life, that you'd help us with clear eyes, see the ways you're working, that you would help us with clear thinking around your truth, not just our struggle with the lies. Thank you that you demonstrated through the cross our infinite worth and value, that you demonstrated through the cross your love and pursuit. And so thank you that grace is greater, stronger than any struggle, than any choice we've ever made. And thank you that you are a God who doesn't just know that we're suffering, but you're a God who suffered too. And in the process that we can find strength from you. So may you meet us in these final minutes that we have together. Breathe Holy Spirit words and life and wisdom and strength into us all. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.